some research came out actually after Real Food for Pregnancy was published where they looked at uh, first ever study looking specifically at protein requirements in postpartum women. They were three to six months postpartum exclusively breastfeeding and their protein needs were higher than an average female athlete. Wow. So um, uh, uh, one of the major challenges and areas that I would focus on if animal foods are a small part or not a part of your diet at all would be to really to prioritize your protein. And in those instances, I actually would recommend tracking. Um, so how much are you actually getting. And then we have to really kind of get honest with how much of the protein in a food are we actually utilizing because protein quality in plant foods, like how much our body can utilize mm -hmm. is significantly less than for um, animal foods, which means you may need to aim even higher than an average female athlete to make up for the fact that some of that won't be bioavailable. Welcome to Your Body's Way, a podcast for all of you health-conscious humans out there who want to nourish, move, and take care of your body your way. Not the diet book's way or even my way. Your journey to find your body's way through all of the noise and nonsense starts right here, where I'll be presenting and breaking down all of the current popular health practices so you can make intelligent choices that work for you and you alone. You know what they say, if the shoe fits. So I encourage you to take on what sounds tempting and to reject what doesn't. So let's dive into your journey to becoming the person you know you can be. Hi there, welcome back to Your Body's Way. I'm Tamara Walpole, your host, and I'm gonna be introducing you to a fabulous guest today. Her name is Lily Nichols, and she is an expert in prenatal and postnatal nutrition and lifestyle. She helps women across the world to heal from their pregnancy and to have the best experience that they can. She's a registered dietitian and a nutritionist. She's a certified diabetes educator. She's an international speaker and she's an author amongst many, many other things. We had an absolutely fabulous conversation about postpartum health because so many of us have had kids and we feel like we haven't recovered fully. So not just the postpartum period of the 12 months after having a child, but also going forward after that. And I don't know about you, but I'm really struggling with that side of things. I know that I haven't felt the same since having children. And I just have always wondered what I could have done differently in the postpartum period to prevent some of the symptoms that I'm dealing with now. And that is something that Lily dives into in this episode. She talks about how in the postpartum period, how our modern society are just not giving mothers enough time to recover. We're often not eating the right foods and replenishing the nutrients that we've lost from pregnancy and labor. So it's a really interesting conversation. And if you find that you're also uh, struggling after having a child, you feel like your health could be better, and maybe you had a child years ago and you're just not feeling right and you just don't know why, 
this is a great episode to shed some light on those topics. So it's a great episode. Lily is absolutely fabulous. She's really busy at the moment doing lots and lots of stuff for her work. So I was so happy to get some time with her. So I'm going to be introducing you to Lily right after this ad. I'm just going to cut in here quickly to tell you about an amazing supplement and healthy snack company, Paleo Valley. Have I got a treat for you? I love the way they only use the best ingredients that are ethically sourced for you and your family. And you can't miss the podcast episode number 43 with Autumn Smith, the co-founder of Paleo Valley, because once you listen to it, you'll see that she lives and breathes health for her customers and the planet. My favorite product by far is the grass-fed organ complex. I know organ meats are the most nutritious foods on the planet, but I struggle to stomach them from time to time, right? But I'm not too worried about missing out on essential nutrients like iron, vitamin B12 and CoQ10 because this 30-day supplement has me covered. I couldn't recommend it enough. My eyes actually feel brighter and my cognitive energy has definitely improved after the first month of use. So if you want the same for yourself, click the link in the show notes for 15% off your next order. You can thank me later. Lily Nichols, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast and a very, very warm welcome. Um, I know that this topic that we're going to be speaking about today is so, so important for so many women out there. You are a expert in prenatal and um, postnatal nutrition and lifestyle health and um, just how to be your best self um, when you're going through these stages of pregnancy. And um, I just thought this would be a really fascinating topic and I would absolutely adore the opportunity to chat about postpartum, the postpartum phase, or as you would call it, the fourth trimester. Because, yeah, yeah because so many um, women are struggling um, postpartum. But then also after the postpartum period as well, there are so many women who have had kids, but who never really feel the same afterwards. <laughs> so um, I thought it'd be a fascinating conversation and you're definitely the person to speak with. So Lily Nichols, um, a very warm welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I love talking about postpartum. So I, I love that topic. It's near and dear to my heart. Right. Um, you have a child of your own, don't you? Do you have one? I have two children. I have two, right. Because I looked Mm -hmm. on your website and I saw one and I was like, okay, so she must have one. But so you have two, right. And what are their ages? Mm -hmm. Uh, My oldest is almost eight and my younger one is four. Wow. Okay. So in general, so I have a question for you because for me, um, I have two children as well. I have a child um, who's two. So it's quite tough, tough time. Um, And I also have a five-year-old. Mm -hmm. So I'm technically out of the postpartum period, technically, like so many women, I feel like I haven't quite, I'm not quite the same as I was before I had children. So my first Mm -hmm. question, just out of interest to you, um, how do you feel after having kids? How are things for you? Kids are older now. Like, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, interestingly, I mean, so first off, I'll say, you know, I don't know that we're meant to be returned to being the same person after we have kids. Interesting. Um, you know, there is a, a transition in your 
just mindset and way of being in the world from like maiden world to motherhood. And I think we need to like normalize and also like celebrate that transition. It's a good thing to be a different person, to embody a different um, way of being when you become a mother. I mean, you really, you can't go back to being a maiden. You'll, you'll try to fight with it and you know, people will really wrestle with it, but it's ultimately a positive thing. And, you know, the only way out is through. So I'll just throw that out there. I think the transition is a good thing. Um, Whether or not you feel like yourself or how I'm feeling now, I mean, I think certainly there's many different phases that you go through. Um, like I even teach a professional webinar on postpartum recovery and nutrient repletion. And I like, I extend the timeline out all the way to two years. Cause I think you really do need like a full two years. I mean, a lot of immediate stuff is going on in that first week or two weeks is like massive transition. The first month, the first couple months, like when you start introducing solid foods to your baby, like all of these things are big milestones and big shifts but it really is a gradual healing process. Um, So, well, no, I don't really feel like postpartum and feel more like myself and I'm getting more sleep now, (laughs) thankfully. Um, I don't know if it's uh, my kids or other, or, or just the way, the way that I experience um, motherhood, but I, you know, the, when your kids are really young, they need you very intensely and that gradually they need you less and less over time, but that kind of comes in waves. Right. So I remember the first time I could like actually lay my baby down and they napped kind of for a little while, not on me. And like, wow, this is amazing. Or when they start becoming mobile and you don't have to physically go to them and move them from place to place, like they can start moving themselves. And then they start walking. Like they keep getting these layers of independence, which to you is so freeing. Like, oh my gosh, I don't have a baby in my arms at all times. Like, but I've actually found, um, you know, maybe I just have more patience for the newborn or early toddler phase. Um, I find it a bit more challenging in the older toddler phase when, um, you know, they, they're fully verbal. They sort of no good behavior from not so good behavior and good manners from not having good manners. Um, but they still ultimately their brain is not developed to the place where they can fully regulate like an adult. Um, and I find that gets challenging for me. I really have to practice the patience. Um, age four in particular has been one of the more challenging phases with both of my kids. So my younger one's four. So I feel like I'm very much in it. Um, and some days are really wonderful and some days are really challenging. And it's just, I, you know, as a parent, there's a lot of negotiation. (laughs) I feel like, like everyone's like, should be like every parent is some sort of expert lawyer. You're like negotiating with sometimes the most irrational, seemingly irrational things. They're a big deal to the kid, but to you, you're like, what you asked for your banana to be cut this way. (laughs) Why is this a meltdown? Right. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, I think for me, it's like about sort of building that resilience and patience for those stages and um, trying to not get tired of like how much you really do have to repeat yourself as a parent, right? calmly, patiently. I am not always perfect at not losing my cool, you know, to be fully real. Um, But uh, yeah, I find this stage is, it's not as physically demanding on my body, but emotionally and mentally, I actually think it's more taxing the later toddler years, like terrible twos, like twos were fairly easy with the kids when they're not fully verbal, you can't really get mad at them for like, throwing a tantrum, right? They can't express what they want. Like once they're at the age where they can express what they want, it's just like, and then they choose not to. (laughs) You're like, just use your words, honey, you know? Um, Yeah. I I don't know about you, but um, I just find that my resilience to stress was a lot better pre-kids. So if I would, I would, if I was going to get stressed before kids, I, I think I feel like chemically my body was able to handle it better. It, like, there must be some sort of chemical um, reason why. But since having children, um, my resilience is a lot less. So, you know, mm, when I get yeah. stressed, I fly off the handle. And mm-hmm. when I get stressed, I'm shaking and I'm kind of quite like I'm a lot more um, likely to compound the stresses like one on top of the oh, other. Oh, now this oh. is happening. Now this is happening. So it's almost like my body isn't dealing with the stress as well. And yeah. um, I feel like that is definitely linked to having kids and whatever happened in my body during that time. Um, it's it's a stressful time. Like it's a really hard it time for, for parents. And, and And another question actually that came to me, for you, who is a successful entrepreneur, um, you have programs, you have books, you have, you know, so many clients and so many things going on. And you're a leader in this field. How are you dealing with balancing entrepreneurship with motherhood? Well, I will say that I have, um, I mean, part of the freedom of being an entrepreneur is that you can choose how heavy your load is at different periods of time. Um, And, you know, some of this is certainly like a privilege. Um, I'm not the sole breadwinner. So I have taken, you know, your business takes a hit, (laughs) but I did take time off with both kids. I didn't have to ask anybody's permission I just had to see if it was financially feasible for me to not work for a number of months. Um, so with both kids, I did bare, bare minimal work for like four months, really um, planned ahead for postpartum. Um, now that's, that's tough. I mean, I already had an established business for many years before I had kids, um, but I did intentionally like pre-plan and work on a lot of things in advance, book out a lot of clients or like make sure that I had some like financial padding to allow that. Um, And that again, that's, that's like a, in a way, a luxury that entrepreneurship affords, but also I'm not getting any subsidized maternity leave or anything from anybody. Right. So it comes on you. Um, So I've really, just for myself, I had to make the conscious choice that like, this is going to be a slower time and to like reduce my expectations. Even as I like eased back into work, I really reduced my expectations on how much I was going to get done. Um, 
And for me, uh, of course, like when you have one, it's also different than two. With my first one, I could get away with like very little childcare. I did, um, I mean, I started writing Real Food for Pregnancy at 10 months postpartum after my first. Um, and a lot of that was like, I was like writing and researching stuff on my phone. And then when I'd get like nap time and this child would not be put down, I'd be like, you know, baby wearing, bouncing on a yoga ball, like typing up whatever notes that I had taken on my phone or research that I had found, I'd get my like 15 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe two here or there. And like, just make the best of whatever time I had. But with one, I mean, when that child's sleeping, the house is silent. And it's like quiet and you're not interrupted. Um, looking back, that's like quite a luxury that I didn't, uh, you know, really appreciate at the time. Um, and then I slowly started to build in some childcare um, in the home. I mean, we're talking like nine to 12 hours a week, like not, not really normal. enough to fully that's run a business. Enough. Yeah. Um, but enough for the level that I wanted to work and for how much I was comfortable being away from my son at the time. And I absolutely loathed pumping, but we were still breastfeeding. And so I could just nurse, you know, oh, you need to interrupt me and nurse. Great. And then like, here's the baby back. Um, and then with my second, well, it got interrupted by COVID. So I was like, just trying to come back from maternity leave and establish childcare. And then like COVID hit. So like no childcare, nothing. Um, so that was actually a slower return to work than I had mm -hmm. anticipated just by circumstance, um, as many parents found themselves in. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, I do still, again, childcare, like you have to have some time, uninterrupted time where somebody else is handling the kids. Um, and that's it. it I... <laughs> There's no easy answer on the childcare thing because there's no perfect solution on childcare in the home, out of the home, school, homeschool, you know, this level of nanny, this, you know, part-time, uh, you know, college age babysitter, like there's no good solution. There's pros and cons to all of them. And it is a really challenge. The biggest challenge actually in my business these days has been maintaining consistent um, child care. So there have definitely been times when I've been out of child care for a long period of time. And I'm just like scraping together bare minimum to keep the business running or to keep the projects going that I need to outsourcing things as much as possible um, to my team. But there's certain things you can't outsource. Like I wish I could clone my brain. I can't. Um, so I think as a business owner, I've just very much also lowered my own um, expectations. And I keep, um, other than right now, where I'm at a very busy time, I try to keep the number of projects and things that I'm working on at the same time as minimal as possible. So people on the outside might be like, oh my gosh, you have these books and you have this program and this course mm -hmm. and this whatever. Right. And you have to remember like, this has been over a decade uh, in development you know I'm I did not write multiple books at the same time those were written like years apart programs were launched years apart the hundreds of blog articles on my website those have been written over the years it's not like I'm writing five at one time mm -hmm. you know um so I very much am like you know try to maintain the consistency but do things slow and steady so I don't get completely overwhelmed because if my nervous system is a wreck um, 
And there are time periods where, you know, you're launching a website or something or a program or a book or whatever, like shit's going to hit the fan. It just is for a period of time. Um, but I don't like to stay there. So I am pretty unapologetic about just prioritizing like nervous system reset. So I don't lose it. Otherwise, like I would just throw in the towel, like burn the whole thing down, you know, <laughs> it's just like not worth it if I'm not feeling well. And this is a really good lesson to share because, you know, just pacing yourself, um, and taking your time and and letting women know that to have their professional life and to have children it it just takes time you know you don't have to rush yes. anything and that's such a good lesson and to hear your experience actually is quite reassuring you're like look I didn't do all of this just like that which so many of us want you know these days things come so quickly to us um you know, the, to know that, you know, someone like yourself has taken your time with everything um, and it's taken years to get to where you are is it's quite reassuring. But you were talking about your first book and I just wanted to bring it up here. Um, it's yes. on my Kindle, so you can, that's a bit of reflection there, but it's a really fabulous book. Um, this is your first, right? Um, that was actually my second. My your first second. one was Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Was yeah. that your first? Oh, okay, mm-hmm. so Real Food for Pregnancy. Um, this is a fabulous book. And I just wanted to start with a quote that I picked up from the postpartum section. So you say, our busy modern world seems to pretend that once you give birth, you're good to go. Everyone wants to pamper pregnant women, but postpartum? After a few weeks, it's as if people expect you to carry on with business as usual. And I think that's such a powerful quote because it's just such a reflection of how it is in our modern society. We all feel so much pressure to bounce back, get our bodies back, get straight back to work, get back to normal day life. Um, I was exactly the same. So I remember the day after I gave birth to my second child, I drove myself to my doctor's appointment the day after and I was carrying my baby in the carrier And none of the nurses could believe it. They were just like, oh my God, you're amazing. You're my hero. Look at you. You gave birth yesterday. You're here. And I was just feeling like, it was silly of me because I was just feeling so proud of myself. I was like, huh, I'm I'm really good at this. This (laughs) And and I was congratulated. And, you know, it's just, it's that, that's what our society is like with, we celebrate women just getting straight back to it. But yeah. in your book, when you discuss postpartum, you go into great detail about how in other cultures, that is just not the case. And actually, if I was to do that in, let's say, Cambodia, or if I was to do that in Mexico, I would prob- I wouldn't be congratulated. I'd probably be angrily sent home and just like, <laughs> you should yeah. be resting. Yeah. So so I, what I wanted to start with is your postpartum journey. How were things for you? Because I know that you learned a few lessons along the way postpartum. So what made you write these books? What made you specialize in this? And how did that play into your postpartum journey? Yeah, well, I mean, before I wrote any of my books, I had uh, worked in the prenatal field for a while, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly a lot of work in the gestational diabetes space uh, clinically and at the public policy level at the state of California. So um, I had a pretty good handle on nourishment during pregnancy, Um, had had quite a bit of client work as well, but a lot of that really focusing on pregnancy, right? Um, 
my education on postpartum nutrition, I mean, there really is no like <laughs> education out there on postpartum nutrition um, and it's kind of ignored. So other than the, you know, the adage of eat like 500 extra calories a day when you're nursing, that's really about it. Like nobody's really talking about postpartum. So I went into my postpartum experience with my second a little bit uh, or with my first rather first baby um, uh, a little bit naive. Uh, I think like many first time moms, I had focused a lot of my energy on, you know, taking care, great care of myself before and during pregnancy and, and planning for the birth so much planning around the birth. Oh my gosh. And then very little planning around postpartum. I mean, I, I had heard it was a good idea to pre-prepare some meals but I'm, I'm pretty efficient in the kitchen. And so I just was like, yeah, I mean, I'll pre prepare some, but I'm already like so quick at throwing together like a slow cooker meal or like throwing some eggs on in the morning. It was like, how hard can that be? Right. Um, plus my first came at 39 weeks. So I started some postpartum meal prep at like 38 weeks, but I was only like, <laughs> I'd only prepped a handful of things. I had just assumed like so many first time moms, I just go to 41 weeks. Right. Um, and that didn't happen. And so, um, I think I was just surprised at how crazy depleted I felt. Um, I did have a bit of a longer labor, like almost a full day. And so I felt just completely wiped out, exhausted. Like I'd run a marathon or something. Um, and so hungry, I was really, really fortunate that I had some friends who already had children who set up a meal train for me. So we did have people in our community, some people, some that I didn't even know, um, delivering meals to us. And that was really, really helpful. Even if like the food they're cooking wasn't necessarily my favorite or some of them knew I was a dietitian. So they're sending me like boneless, skinless chicken breasts and brown rice and broccoli with like no salt, no butter, no any. So we we're like adding all the salt and butter and cheese and flavor and calories to things because it like, I needed like sustenance, yes. you know? Um, but I just remember being, yeah, blindsided by how um, exhausting it is, how, how much the sleep deprivation um, compounds and how quickly and yeah, how you're really not don't have the wherewithal or free arms or, you know, confidence to baby wear a newborn or whatever to be up and cooking mm -hmm. um, right away. You really need to rely on your village. So I, I was actually able to stay pretty well nourished. And, you know, other than being kind of shocked at just like, wow, how intense this is, I had a pretty good recovery. Um, but that certainly inspired me to write a very long chapter on postpartum in Real Food for Pregnancy. I mean, like I said, I started writing it within that first year. So I was still in the thick of it, um, still nursing, still not getting a full night's sleep, you know. Um, and then with my second, I knew better. I, other than like aligning, you know, a birth team that I wanted, I spent virtually no time preparing for the birth because there's like nothing really to prepare. You just sort of surrender to the process and have a supportive, supportive people there to help out and uh, did a lot of work preparing for postpartum. So like about halfway through the pregnancy, 
um, I was like, okay, I'm going to get, uh, you know, one, anytime I make a meal that would work well as a freezer meal, I'm going to make like double portion and freeze it. So I had months worth of food, um, stocked up in the freezer. We had like a brief meal train, but not, not as much. We were living in a different area at that time. Um, and I also invited my mom to come and stay with us. And she was with us for about a month. So I had like, I invited and accepted help Mm -hmm. um, and just kept my expectations of myself really low. Now, interestingly, that birth was only a few hours, super smooth, like easiest birth you could ask for. And so I was not, I did not feel completely depleted um, by that. And I had kind of learned just how much more protein you need when you're nursing. And so I was not um, as much swinging between like, I'm starving (laughs) and then like famished, uh, you know, eating a lot and then famished and eating a lot and then famished because I had like got my macros into a better place. Like I really needed a lot of protein. So I was just really diligent about staying nourished. Um, and I, I felt like my recovery was, was great and it was faster than, you know, my first still inevitably you're exhausted because of like sleep and you're nursing around the clock. And, you know, still, of course, my appetite was super high, but I was really diligent about um, nourishment and keeping my expectations of how much I could get done in a day, um, you know, at a reasonable level. (laughs) Right, And that just proves that what you teach actually works. So getting rest, getting support, eating the right food to support your body and help you heal, like that stuff actually works. And it's something that women need to take note of and they need to actually start doing. So when it comes to, um, you know, you said that, um, you know, you invited your mother to stay for a month and that's a really good practice. That's something that, you know, so many of us don't actually do. Can you just go into a little bit the different cultures so in your book you have this great chapter on how different cultures actually treat postpartum women and I just think it's great so for example there's it's one one example that I thought sounded awesome so in Cambodia women do something called roasting on a bamboo bed a bamboo shoot bed and I just thought oh my god I love the idea of that so after having a baby they lie on a warm bed and they're there for three days and I just think those practices are so nourishing for the mother. So can you just go into just a little bit, just how different cultures are so different from us and what we can take from them? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, there's there's a lot of um, overlap in what many other cultures practice around postpartum. So there is often a 40-day period um, where you're encouraged to rest and recover Mm -hmm. and it can be you know the exact time frame can differ a little bit depending on the country but that's a pretty common length of time those 40 Mm -hmm. days which interestingly aligns with the first six weeks um that in western culture they tell you is your postpartum recovery period Mm -hmm. but our expectations of what you're doing during that time are very different in the West from some of these other cultures. <laughs> so depending on where you look, there's often, um, you know, recommendations to stay in bed for a certain amount of time or stay in the home for a certain amount of time, um, avoid exposure to cold, windy, damp weather. Like there's, there's a lot about keeping the mother warm and 
some of this, you know, arguably circles back to times when we didn't have like climate controlled houses and like, you know, your home was cold if it was cold outside and you needed to stay all bundled up inside. Like now we have heat and yeah. air conditioning and whatever to keep us more comfortable. So some of those things I think we need to take with a grain of salt. But um, there is this big emphasis on staying warm, not only like physically in your space, but also with the food that you're consuming is often warming foods, things mm -hmm. that are going to like boost your chi or your energy. Um, and you see that a lot, especially in parts of Asia, like China, um, Korea, Thailand, uh, Cambodia, there's an emphasis on uh, warming soups and stews, things that have warming spices like ginger, we often think of as warming. That's really common um, in that part of the world and others as well. And you see the same thing with warming soups and stews in other parts of the world too. You see it in Africa, you see it in Mexico, you see it in Peru, um, where it's often a, an animal-based stew, like a piece of piece of meat with a bone or a whole chicken or in China it's pig trotter soup um, in Korea they make like a seaweed soup that's usually in a beef bone broth uh, base and this like tough collagenous cut of meat is cooked into a broth and then you know, of course you add in all the other yummy flavorful ingredients with it as well um, but you're really emphasizing like fluids electrolytes there's protein in there and there's a lot of specifically on the protein front, a lot of collagen, which mm -hmm. you need quite a bit of to support your body's healing process. Your uterus has a ton of collagen. It's like completely remodeling your connective tissues that were all stretched. Some of them may have been torn or cut mm -hmm. um, depending on how birth went down. And those all need that to recover your breasts as your milk comes in, your breasts get engorged and the tissues in there are stretching. That's requiring more collagen. All the you know skin on your stomach that got stretched beyond capacity when you were pregnant now is remodeling. We need collagen to help that happen. So it makes sense that there's some, you know, collagen rich yeah. foods tend to be um, emphasized. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into like more specifics culture to culture, but I like to kind of highlight the overlap because there really is quite a bit. Um, that, even I mean, if that's... there's differences regionally, it's like warming foods over cold raw foods, like warming cooked foods, easy to digest, highly nutrient dense, high mm -hmm. protein are really common thread. So this naturally leads to a question about people's diets because you mentioned how different cultures have animal foods as a big part of their diet so what would you say to someone who's a vegetarian or they prefer to avoid meat or they're vegan um what would you say to someone in that situation and they're like right well how do I heal if you know I'm not eating yeah. animal foods yeah I mean it's a it's a it's a good question I think you also need to kind of um uh, you know, level set what your priorities are and just get really honest with yourself with how you feel. Certainly for somebody who's vegetarian, like lacto-ovo vegetarian and has milk and eggs as an option, you mm -hmm. can include those foods certainly. And those are commonly in parts of the world where those foods are consumed a lot. Um, those are often included in postpartum menus. Um, 
I will say that, you know, some research came out actually after Real Food for Pregnancy was published where they looked at uh, first ever study looking specifically at protein requirements in postpartum women. They were three to six months postpartum exclusively breastfeeding and their protein needs were higher than an average female athlete. Wow. So, um, a, a, one of the major challenges and areas that I would focus on if animal foods are a small part or not a part of your diet at all would be to really to prioritize your protein. And in those instances, I actually would recommend tracking. Um, so how much are you actually getting? And then we have to really kind of get honest with how much of the protein in a food are we actually utilizing because protein quality in plant foods, like how much our body can utilize mm -hmm. is significantly less than for um, animal foods, which means you may need to aim even higher than an average female athlete to make up for the fact that some of that won't be bioavailable bio mm -hmm. um, and to include as great a variety of sources within the confines of whatever dietary restrictions you follow um, to ensure the, the best possible balance of amino acids. So there's, there's fewer um, shortcomings there. So uh, protein would be, you know, a really major place to focus. And um, I would say for all women, but particularly those who lean more plant-based continuing your supplementation, mm -hmm. um, comprehensive prenatal vitamin, uh, source of DHA, if you're not doing fish and algae based DHA supplement, because you also need those nutrients, your micronutrient stores are in the toilet after having a baby. Oh, Sorry. They're never going to be, they're never, uh, you're never going to end pregnancy with nutrient stores higher than when you went into it. Mm -hmm. And, um, not only for your own healing, your mental well being, um, cause we do know there's a lot of nutrients that can impact risk for like maternal mental health issues. Um, but also the levels of micronutrients in your breast milk are for many micronutrients, not all reflective of your maternal nutrient stores and or intake, arguably both depends on the nutrient and how our body uh, transfers those things into breast milk. Um, but there are really, really major concerns, um, for the baby getting enough like DHA, for example, vegans have the lowest DHA levels in breast milk of any population group or vitamin B12, like deficiency in that can cause permanent neurological damage in 50% of infants who experience this. And you don't start to see those issues until they go through their own stores, which is usually four to six months out. So, um, definitely continuing with whatever supplementation you were doing in pregnancy, continuing that postpartum is absolutely crucial. So it's, it's in those cases, particularly when like there might not be a source or sufficient amounts of some nutrients and food supplementation becomes really, really important. Um, people don't realize, but your nutrient needs during postpartum are higher than during pregnancy. And yet that's the time when people are like, well, my job is done. You know, yeah. I built this baby. I birthed this baby. I can eat what I want. I can do good. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, actually, this is the time to really like double down on it. Right. Um, and that's hard, like mental capacity for keeping track of things. That's hard. Sometimes you forget your supplements. You, if you, food isn't like prepared for you and presented to you, you might be accidentally skipping meals or relying on, you know, whatever snacks or bars are handy just because you're so famished. Yes. Um, 
So to draw it all the way back to the community component, you know, you, you need that community to help support you, bring the things to you so you can eat and stay nourished. Yeah. So what actually happens during the pregnancy and the labor where we do become so depleted? Like what do we tend to become depleted in and, and why? Like what is happening to our body? Because when we give birth and the postpartum period, I think we, we're just not educated enough in what you've just said, that we are depleted, that, you know, our micronutrients are at an all time low and our requirements are at an all time high, which puts us at immediate disadvantage. And we have to work really hard during that time and to not replenish can lead to long term health problems for women with health problems that they're stuck with for good. Um, so what actually happens during that time? What micronutrients are we losing the most during this time? I mean, arguably you're losing all of all them. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you have to remember. So oh, gosh. Know, during pregnancy, we've got it okay. hard, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what's going on in your body? Okay. So you have grown a brand new human being who has a brain and organs and blows my mind bones and skin and all the tissues you've grown a placenta like a Mm. brand new very large organ it's it's arguably very similar to a liver in many of its functions and it's huge it kind of looks like liver it's like (laughs) yeah if it's if your placenta is healthy it's like rich maroon color right and fairly large um And then your body has undergone a ton of adaptations in order to facilitate this baby's growth. Your circulatory system has changed. Your hormone production has changed. Your thyroid produces, you know, 50% more thyroid hormone throughout pregnancy. Um, Your uterus, you know, (laughs) goes from the size of a pear to the size of a watermelon. All of your connective tissues and skin have stretched to accommodate that. It's wild what the body has done. All your internal organs reorganized to Mm -hmm. like allow that baby to grow. And then of course, birth itself is uh, any combination of like a a marathon, (laughs) um, possibly a marathon with abdominal surgery at the end if there's an emergency C-section or a C-section alone is major abdominal surgery, which if you have surgery, how long do doctors usually recommend you recover and rest? I mean, often like six weeks or so, but yet you need to be, you know, 24 seven caring for this baby, often with insufficient care for yourself. Um, And then postpartum, you know, okay, when baby is born, there's a, a dinner plate size wound inside your uterus left by the placenta when it detaches that needs to heal your hormones go through the most dramatic shift that they will ever go through in your lifetime where you like are switching from hormones of pregnancy to hormones of lactation. Mm -hmm. Your thyroid gland needs to completely remodel. Your breasts are undergoing massive changes as your milk starts to come in. Um, It's, it's wild what your body is doing. Um, Not to mention you've just like loaned a whole bunch of nutrients to this baby and then you're going to continue mm-hmm. to share that that nutrition with your baby via your breast milk if you're choosing to nurse 
Um, and that is arguably a greater nutritional depletion even than the pregnancy itself. I mean, breastfeeding is just a huge drain on your resources. Um, just from energy needs alone, your, your energy requirements for lactation I mean, are much higher you, than they are for pregnancy. Just you like going through that. It just emphasizes how much our body goes through and how much we need to recover. And we need to yeah. look after ourselves after that phase is so, so important. Otherwise that's why so many women don't feel the same ever again. Like um, not just because they're mothers and because they have a new role, but because physically they just haven't topped up over the years. They just yes. haven't topped up. How long do you think it takes for a woman to top up after having a baby? Like realistically? I mean, I, I am of the opinion that it's a full two years two to years, really fully yeah. recover. Mm. Your most intense period of recovery arguably is in that first three to six months. Mm -hmm. um, and in that first year, it, especially in cases where you're continuing to breastfeed beyond that time point. I mean, there's a continual drain of your, <laughs> of your energy and micronutrients via your milk, um, breast milk doesn't suddenly become nutritionally hollow after a certain time period. Like mm -hmm. you're still transferring energy, nutrients, vitamins, minerals, uh, through your milk. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think prolonged lactation, um, and, you know, been there, done that, like nurse my kids, both like almost two and a half years, like it's a continual mm -hmm. pull from your nutritional resources, um, so yeah, I, I do recommend giving it a full two years, mm -hmm. the like level at which you need to focus on repletion certainly probably declines over time, depending on how voracious of a nurser your, yes. your toddler is right. Yes. So some, some babies, they take to solid foods fairly quickly and nursing becomes less interesting to them other kids don't take to solids quite as well or still really want to nurse quite a bit and so the more you're nursing the more of a drain that is on on your resources so yeah it depends and I just wanted to focus in on some really common conditions that women face after giving birth so I guess depending on how her, uh, horrific is the wrong word um how much blood they lost during the labor um and just how much blood they've lost during their lifetime really how often do you see anemia and low iron low b12 is that common in women who have just had children very common um mm -hmm. anemia affects about 30 percent of of women postpartum. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of that does depend on the amount of blood that was lost, uh, during birth. Mm -hmm. So for women who lose a lot of blood at birth, their risk of anemia can be upwards of 75 fold higher than a woman who lost a typical amount of blood. There's always blood loss during delivery. That's a normal physiological part of the process. Mm -hmm. Um, but when it becomes like a, you know, hemorrhage sort of situation, uh, yeah, it's very common. Prevalence of B12 deficiency, I don't know that that is, um, I don't know of a study that has measured that specifically in postpartum mothers. So time period that is least studied, mm -hmm. in my opinion, um, in humans is 
postpartum. Um, a lot of the research around postpartum focuses on, um, you know, milk supply quantity or quality, um, how that affects the baby mm-hmm. and less so on moms themselves, maternal needs, maternal rates of deficiency. Um, B12 deficiency is more common among people who are not consuming B12 rich foods. So we mm-hmm. certainly see it at a much greater rate um, in vegans, primarily um, slightly less so in vegetarians. And then it's less common in omnivores because you get your B12 from animal foods. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it is depends on diet or whether you were supplementing and whether you were supplementing with a sufficient amount. Um, mm-hmm. I should like throw out there that there's some, some research showing that the vitamin B12 recommendation should probably be at least tripled for pregnancy and lactation to prevent a deficiency in, in mothers. So, you know, if you're taking a prenatal and the daily value box says 100% of the RDA, that's three times too low. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and particularly vegetarians and vegans need a separate higher dose, uh, vitamin B12 supplement to prevent deficiency. So don't assume you're fine just because you have a prenatal and it says hundred percent, like you might actually uh, need more Mm. and you could request blood work to check that, you know, your serum B12 levels or your MMA levels um, could give you an indication of whether you need more B12 than you're getting. And would you say that low iron and anemia, would you say it's underdiagnosed and a lot of women are walking around postpartum coming back with normal blood work for their iron levels but they've got all of the symptoms of anemia. Um, do you find that that's, it's an underdiagnosed condition and that all women should take, take it seriously, all of them? Like when, they, when they're given birth, it makes sense to try and replenish your iron stores. And if so, how would you recommend she goes about doing that? Yeah, well, I don't think many providers are really checking labs early mm-hmm. on. I mean, arguably, if you're going to check anyone's labs in the first like, month postpartum, we're all deficient and everything. Um, So you probably don't even bother until maybe six weeks out. If you're feeling really like woozy, low energy, I mean, certainly go in and and get it checked sooner. There can be a lot of potential reasons. Anemia is one of many Mm -hmm. um, that could be playing a role there. But, um, you know, anemia is and iron levels and everything. It's really tricky. Um, a lot goes into red blood cell production beyond just iron. So you can be anemic even if your iron is fine. Although I think most postpartum women are probably would benefit from some more iron rich foods. Um, We need to think about complementary nutrients though, as well that can improve like iron utilization and support red blood cell production. So just taking iron doesn't necessarily fix the issue. And depending on the type of iron can really be a, uh, not a great idea in early postpartum because they could be very constipating. And the last thing you want to be early postpartum is constipated. Yeah, no, you don't want to be pushing out that. Yeah, no more pushing. Like I would not be taking those postpartum. If you need to take an iron supplement, an iron bisglycinate would be good or recommending a food source iron. So with your iron-rich foods, the ones that have highly highly bioavailable iron, which are animal foods, um, they also contain the cofactors that you need for that red blood cell production. So they also contain B12, 
riboflavin, folate, copper, vitamin A in the retinol form. Did I say B12? Probably already said B12. Um, and glycine and certain proteins that are also needed for that red blood cell production and the production of heme. Mm -hmm. um, and they contain iron in the heme form. So your body can really readily utilize it. So you see actually in quite a few postpartum traditions, there is an emphasis on um, organ meats uh, and red meats. Organ meats would be the highest possible in iron, B12, like all, all the nutrients you need for the red blood cell production. So, and I know for me personally, like I craved, I make this um, grass-fed beef meatloaf that has hidden liver in it. Like there's oh, liver lovely. pate in it. Yeah. And I craved that um, both times postpartum. Not uh, luckily, I had like taught my husband how to make it. So I was like, make the meatloaf. <laughs> like you're like so weak make and like meatloaf. Feed me. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, of course, have like a triple or quadruple portion because you're just so hungry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would just highly recommend emphasizing those iron-rich, B12 rich. Mm -hmm foods, um, if liver, organ meats, red meats off the table, um, shellfish like oyster, clams, mussels are also really high in B12 and iron. They're not quite as high in vitamin A, but they still have some. Um, but you really, really need those nutrients yeah. for that to those all those processes in your body to get back on board, rebuild your blood supply, rebuild your iron stores and nutrient stores. And are you a fan of organ meat supplements? Because I'm quite a fan and I take them whenever I'm not eating my organ meats. I make sure I take my supplements as well. Um, I know they're not as effective as eating the real thing, but if someone can't really take the taste or they just find it difficult to eat organs, um, I think it's quite a good alternative to make yeah. sure you're getting in those nutrients that you're missing out on. Absolutely. I think it's a perfectly fine uh, replacement. You know, you'll have... Uh, a certain amount of, of possibly like B vitamin loss, um, mm -hmm. in the freeze drying process, but, um, otherwise the iron should be intact. That's for sure. And, um, you'll retain most of the micronutrients because, because they're freeze dried, it's a, you know, low, low temperature, uh, process. So I do think that's a perfectly fine stand in. Um, mm -hmm. I do, if I'm eating like liver that day, I'm not going to take an organ supplement, but when you're postpartum, you probably would be just fine having a double <laughs> yeah. dose. Like yeah, you'll you probably, probably be fine. It. We're not worried about like overdoing it during the postpartum period usually. Um, yeah, those are a good replacement. So you yourself, I know that you're quite a fan of uh, low carb eating, um, not necessarily during pregnancy or postpartum, but in general, um, it's something that you recommend to people and, you know, you've done some work on it and I've seen the lectures as well. So for women who may be in a rush to lose weight after giving birth um, and therefore low carb and low calorie is very likely during that time and therefore ketosis can possibly kick in. Um, what is, is, is ketosis safe for a woman who is breastfeeding? Would you recommend her, just say she wants to lose weight, would you recommend that she reduces her carbs? Or would you say, no, keep them high because ketosis isn't great during that time? What's your advice usually? Yeah, so to kind of um, clarify on the carbs, um, mm, yeah, I, I span the world of like 
I'm trained as a conventional dietitian, right? Um, but then all the like holistic, real food, ancestral nutrition side of things. Right. And so when I'm talking about, um, I've written a lot about low carb, this is in context of the dietary guidelines that tell you 45 to 60% 60%. of your calories should be carbohydrates, very high carbohydrate diet. Um, And so I'm a fan of what I call a moderately low carb diet. I don't think we need anywhere close to what the guidelines recommend, unless you're like an athlete and you Mm. really are burning that much energy, then sure. And some people thrive at different levels of carbs. And I, I, acknowledge that extensively in my work. Um, but many of us, uh, do much better at a little more moderate level of carbohydrates. Not everybody necessarily needs to go super low carb or keto, Mm -hmm. although some people feel great doing that. So you kind of have to find your sweet spot for yourself Mm -hmm. when it comes to postpartum specifically, that is a time when low carb is certainly controversial um, because your energy requirements are so high. Mm-hmm. If we're thinking of carbohydrate intake in terms of, you know, you can look at it in terms of grams. Like I've counted, I had, you know, 75 grams of carbohydrates per day, or you can look at it as a percentage of your energy intake, right? Like I have, am eating 30% of my calories from carbohydrates. When you're postpartum and your energy needs are, again, the general ballpark is 500 calories higher per day. Even if your percentage of calories from carbohydrates stays equivalent, that means the grams of carbohydrates you're eating is higher, right? So people who arbitrarily try to stay really low carb, I mean, if you are adapted to that way of eating, it may work fine for you. But when I see it being a problem is when people are not typically eating low carb, and they go on some sort of a crash diet where they're they're go- coming from like 200 grams of carbs per day to like 30 yeah. overnight. Your body is not adapted to make that change that quickly and maintain your milk supply. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like you're switching how your metabolism is working a little too quickly. Um, on top of that, when you eat low carb, your metabolism becomes more efficient. This is why it often helps you lose weight and you naturally burn more calories. That means if you want to maintain your energy intake and supply, you actually need to eat more calories. But when people are going low carb, they're usually doing the opposite. They're eating less. And so it's compounded. You've gone low carb and low calorie at the same time. You're not getting enough food to heal, to recover to maintain your milk supply, I'm of the opinion that it's not a good idea to do any sort of drastic uh, carbohydrate cutting or calorie cutting, particularly in those first three months postpartum. I'm never a fan of drastic calorie cutting actually, Um, but with carbs, once you get to like a few months in, and your milk supply has been more established because you have to, you know, early on, it's just very much hormonally driven. You're just mm-hmm. almost everybody is just producing a lot of milk all the time. And then it kind of regulates to supply and demand with how much the baby's extracting. And most of the time that transition has happened by about three months where it's a little more supply and demand. Um, if you've been under fueling, under nourishing, or maybe there's like a latch issue that was never addressed, like need some lactation consultant help, um, 
a couple months in, you can start to notice your supply like, right? Um, so that's why I say like, you want to make sure you've really established a good supply. And then if you do want to consider going lower carb, um, do so gradually. Don't do it really quickly. So from three months, just approximately. over a couple, yeah, over a couple weeks, yeah. a couple months, just like, okay, I am used to having fruit as a snack. And now I'm going to have a, you know, cheese stick and some almonds for my snack or something. I'm just giving an example, or maybe a half portion of fruit plus those other more protein, fat rich items. Um, but don't just drastically go keto overnight. It's mm -hmm. I've seen it not work out well. At the same time, the people who do great keto and have maintained it, you know, during their pregnancy, during postpartum, they oftentimes can maintain normal supply, everything's fine. It's yeah. what your body is, your body is adapted to. So just be gentle with yourself. Don't go on crazy crash diets and please, for the love of God, do not cut your calories super significantly. You need that nourishment and it'll come back to bite you. Mm. Like you may drop a few pounds here, but your metabolism is going to be shot. Your thyroid's going to be shot and you're going to be paying the price a year or two later with hypothyroidism and other issues. Like you want to nourish yourself in order to support your metabolism over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have to get over this idea that you need to lose the weight uh, super quickly. Like yeah. I lost the weight more slowly the second time around intentionally because I was really, really trying to st stay well-nourished and I felt great. I was like, this is so much better than losing the weight right away. Yeah. This is so much better. I'm so glad this is <laughs> more slowly. I have more energy. I feel alive. My like mood is better. Everything is better when you let the things happen gradually. Not yeah. that I tried to lose the weight quickly the first time. I just like <laughs> first babies, I think sometimes you can lose it quicker, but also like I think I wasn't I I didn't I I didn't even acknowledge how much you really need to stay nourished, you know, like you learn through doing a little bit. You yeah. learn through trial and error that first postpartum. Yeah. And that's why your book is so helpful because anybody who's doing this for the first time, then your book has everything they need to know about how to do this safely. Like they don't need to make that a mistake with the first or they, they exactly. don't need to learn from the first. Um but can I can I just ask why do you think um, women are having this pressure to bounce back? What do you think? Where do you think we're going wrong as a society? Where are we getting this influence from? Like across the board, um, media, uh, family, mm. movies, social media is full of all yep. sorts of you know. I don't know if you follow any of those accounts that kind of. Uh, reveal the image editing and stuff that some of these uh influencers will use to edit no, their I bodies like I, <laughs> I feel it's like that'd be quite good for my soul if i, I think her name is like her name is dana mercer i uh, so gonna i think i need that for my soul yes yeah. and so you know there's all sorts of like it feels like everything is fake now right yeah <laughs> so right. I think if we were to spend more time connected as a community in that proverbial village mm. where you're spending time with you know in intergenerational settings and with 
other families of people your age who are having kids and you can see firsthand how postpartum goes down, how slow it is, mm. how in the moment it is, how much you need help like on the ground in your house, how much support is needed, how you never really get a break, even if you get a break, invite all the help and you still don't really get a break, but you get more of it than if you're totally on your own, right? Mm -hmm. um, how often those babies are nursing. I mean, it's wild how much they're attached to your body, but holy cow, like it's nonstop. Um, I think we'd have a better appreciation for a normal trajectory for recovery. Um, certainly we also have all the societal issues in the US in particular with like no maternity leave. I mean, we're, it's, it's ridiculous. What is the maternity um, leave? It's a I mean, a self-employed person, I get nothing. Like right, right. nothing. Yeah. If, if like, a good maternity leave policy would be considered like four months, either partially or fully paid. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes women get as little as two weeks yeah. a yeah. month or nothing altogether. Whereas like I have friends in Canada. In fact, I visited a friend in Canada when I was pregnant and she was like, so how much time are you planning to take off for postpartum a year or the full 18 months? And I was like, hold the door. What are you talking <laughs> about? Yeah, then alone 18 and, months. Yeah. Apparently that you can get like, you have job security for like, you're guaranteed to get your job back for like a year and you get full Hopefully That's I'm not misquoting as well. Like full payment, or you can choose to take that over 18 months. So your one year salary over 18 months and still job security that you could get your job back. I, I believe Here, in the UK it's it's a year, but yeah. your pay is less and less over the months. And then they okay. stop paying you after a certain month. Okay. Um, but you have job security for about a year. Um, I yeah. haven't actually um, taken um, leave in the UK because I live in the Cayman Islands. Okay. Um, so I, I actually haven't done it myself, so I don't know the exact figures, but I know that you have the job security for a year and you, yeah. you still get paid, but less and less over the months. But you're saying in the US, you don't get that at all. You don't get that depending on the state you're in. I think there's, you can get, of course, I'm not an expert on this since I'm yeah. self-employed and couldn't qualify for right. anything anyways. Um, there is something called FMLA, which sometimes will give you like I think maybe it's like 12 weeks or up to three months. I'm probably misquoting it, but there's, there's really no guarantee. Like if you partake in one of those things, you might not even get your job back. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really that's, bad. Yeah, It's, that's it's really bad. And a lot of people are, you know, really not in a financial situation to even take any leave I mean mm -hmm. you have a significant portion of the female workforce coming back into their jobs within two weeks postpartum I mean mm -hmm. you're still bleeding yeah right breastfeeding is not even established yet um so it's crazy um and and again that's why I feel like it, it was a luxury as somebody who's self-employed even though I'm you know nobody's paying my leave I can choose to not work and then come back to my job and pr resume making money at some point. Whereas if you're, um, you know, reliant on an employer, yeah, that might not be possible. It's wild. So yeah, there's all sorts of, it, there's all sorts of, um, I think societal problems 
expectations on bounce back culture. I think even amongst our own families, mm -hmm. because so many women have just like made it work despite like no support, no help, whatever. We're in that kind of generation where it's like, well, my mother didn't have any help and my mother didn't have my any mom help. says that to me all the time. Well, I yeah. didn't have any help. She says it to me all the time. Yeah. So it's crazy. normalized that yeah. you're just going to like, well, it's hard, but we pull ourselves yeah. up by our bootstraps right. and we just figure it out instead yeah. of like, no, this actually isn't normal. <laughs> no, we actually need support here. Um, so there's this yeah. um, little kind of passage in your book where you mention how a Korean lady in the US, she gave birth in the US and she was surprised at how after seven days, her friends and family came around to visit the baby but they were all about the baby and not much about her and she yeah. was shocked because in Korea it's about mothering the mother about the mom. so it would be like what do you need it'll be just basically all about the mum and about the baby equally so I just found that really really fascinating and I think you know yeah. what what you stand for in your book is is we should definitely bring a lot more of that back you know just to help the healing process yeah. eat hot real foods as you said in your book the title of your book it's all about real food and that's what you represent in your work so I just think it's so powerful and there's so much um, knowledge that you've shared in this episode so thank you so much um, I just wanted to finish by asking you um, what's next for you? What's what's going on? Um, what's happening? Yes. Um, well, a lot is simultaneously happening uh, right now. Uh, my third book comes out in mid-February. It's on fertility. Amazing. Um, yep. So we're definitely looking forward to bringing that to life. Um, I'm also enrolling the next uh, round of mentorship students in the Institute for Prenatal Nutrition. Um, so that is starting in March. Uh, so that's, that's really fun, because my happy place really is kind of getting into the weeds um, mm -hmm. and teaching. So the it's almost like, well, people have probably noticed if they visited my website or read any of my books, I, I tend to want to go in depth and actually in my writing, I'm, I'm holding back a little bit because I'm trying not to overwhelm um, the, the reader too much, provide enough interest in research and data that a health professional would find it helpful, but put it in a way that's not like you're reading a foreign language. Mm. Um, Whereas in your and brain, so, it's like, I've got so much information. There's you just have to like sieve it out. Like just there's a lot. It. Yeah. I mean, this, even this next book, I mean, we have over 2,600 citations. It's insane. I don't know how we you couldn't do even it. publish it in the book because it would have added an extra 300 pages to the book. Oh so um, it's insane. Yes. Oh my God, <laughs> so... your brain must be so full of like citations and science. <laughs> like, well, that's why I write it down because right. My my brain can't hold it all. So that's why I try to write when I read something, I try to write about it. If it's not in a book or it's not in one of my programs, I, I write about it on, a, you know, a blog on my website, or I put up a research brief on my Instagram. Um, yeah, there's, 
there's so I I just love reading the data. I just find it fascinating yeah. um, and how it all you know interconnects. So, mm-hmm. yeah, keep an eye out for um, that book. And if you're a healthcare professional, um, consider joining us in IPN for the next round. I only run the program once a year, mm-hmm. and yeah, after those things are complete, I'm going to rest and yes. not launch anything new and not write any books for a while. Um, they take a long, long, long time to research and write and edit and bring to life. Um, so I'm going to take a bit of a pause mm. and probably continue a lot of this coming on podcasts yeah. and things and talking about it, um, yeah. but taking a little pause from the heavy work. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I literally can't wait for that for you. It's going to be such a good time. Um, how can people follow you? and find you and sign up for programs and what's the best way to find you online? Yeah, well, there's quite a few websites, but my main hub is lilynicholsrdn.com. Mm-hmm. So that links out to everything, the books, the services, the programs, the blog posts, um, free download, a free chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy. Um, there's a whole freebies tab with lots of different things you could check out. So that site really does um, pull it all together. So definitely look there first. Um, As far as social media, I mean, I'm on all the platforms, but I'm really most active these days on Instagram. And my handle is the same as my site. So it's Lily Nichols RDN. Lovely. Lily, that was just such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I know that you're jam packed at the moment. You've got so much going on. So just that you could, just the fact that you've had this time just have this conversation I'm really thankful and I know you're going to help so many people so I really hope we can do this again um, and I look forward to it I'm Tamara Walpole and you've been listening to Your Body's Way if you haven't already please subscribe share rate and review this podcast you can find me on Instagram as Tamara Walpole Nutrition Join me next time for some more juicy information on how to help you on your journey to your best self yet. Your body's way is the only way. Chat soon.